hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Bartenders, servers, hairstylists, cabbies, concierge, bellhop. What do all these careers have in common? They're all service industry professionals or tipped workers who rely heavily on tips to earn their income. And personal finance for tipped workers is not the same as it is for nine to fivers or entrepreneurs. And there are a lot of LGBTQ folks who work in the service industry. So we invited Barbara Sloan of Tip Finance to join us to talk about her book, Tipped. Barbara's going to share why service industry professionals should report all of their tips, how to build a retirement plan, much like a company-sponsored retirement plan that has helped many W-2 workers become millionaires, and why and how tipped workers, too, can and should buy a home. Barbara has done multiple tip jobs in multiple states, as well as worked in the corporate finance side of things. She has the inside scoop on both industries and how tipped workers, too, can reach financial security. You're listening to Queer Money, episode 354. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome, Barbara Sloan of Tip Finance to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, totally. This has been, I feel like, over a year in the making because we met you at FinCon. Austin. Austin. Austin, 2021. Yep. Right after the pandemic, right? And you were talking about your book and your whole mission. And we're like, this is brilliant. This is amazing. But the book wasn't quite out yet. And I think we emailed you like two or three times throughout the year. Like, what's the <laughs> status the of your book? <laughs> When's the book coming out? When's the book coming out? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. This is my first book. And I had no idea just the how long it takes, the process. So yeah, I, I went to FinCon probably a little earlier than I should have. <laughs> <laughs> but I got proof of concept, which was yes. great. I yeah. met some really Very wonderful much. people. Yeah. And the time was good because we were very, we, 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 we love the book. I mean, it was so much so that now we, we kind of want to take it with us whenever we go out to eat or to the bars or whatever, <laughs> so that we can just like pull it out of our backpack and give it to the waiter, staff people and whomever. But so let's dive into the nitty gritty of your book and, and share with our audience. I'll preface this folks by saying, First of all, John and I absolutely love this book. We read this book while we were driving from Pennsylvania to Ohio twice because we drove from Pennsylvania to Ohio, then back to Pennsylvania, then back to Ohio. So we read your book during those trips. And while having both served in the service industry at on a number of occasions, this book resonated with us so much. The other thing is knowing just especially because the data out of the after the pandemic, knowing how many LGBT folks work in the service industries in various capacities or are now managing individuals who are in this, they were managers in the service industry. This book, I think, is so valuable and important and at a very down to earth level, speaking from your experience, which is amazing. We're yeah, so excited guys, to share this. You guys had an awesome statistic that like something like 40% of LGBTQ people are in retail and service work. And that translates to millions of people in the service industry who are LGBTQ. It's a mm -hmm. big, big population. It mm -hmm. is. It's massive. And I think that's why it is, it's interesting for us to talk about because the way in which folks who work in the service industry who and po folks who earn majority of their income through tips is economically very different than I think even the way John and I talk a lot. We talk a lot from our personal experience from when we got a nine to five every two or twice a month paycheck, right? And you don't talk from that perspective in which that's what's so refreshing and nice. Very good. Very good. Yeah. I cut you off there and I probably went too far. So no, no I'll, the editor, I'll let you take, a, I'll let you have the reins back, John. The editor, <laughs> Tim's team will let us know if you went too far. <laughs> so my first question is, is you use the, the term service industry professionals and the acronym SIPs. 
Do you pronounce that SIPs or SIPs? Because I was going back and forth the entire time I was reading it because it kind of likes SIPs because you know you sip your drink, but I'm not yeah. sure what you're supposed to do. The intention was SIPs. And okay. that's a term that I made up just because I got oh, really? so sick of writing service industry professional <laughs> over and over and over again. I was like, let's just shorten this so it's easier for me and everyone else in the world. It's just sips now. I made it oh, up. Okay. Everyone has to use it. It's a new Barbara term, Sloan sips. coined the term. <laughs> right here. And every time you use the word sips, you have to say per Barbara Sloan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, like it. I think when most people think about employment, they think about two different types of employment. They think about W-2 employment where the owner of your company sets up what your job is. They set up your wages. They set up your paycheck. They set up your benefits. And that's what we think of more as traditional nine to five type work. And the mm -hmm. other type of employment that most people see is when they're self-employed, whether that's gig, consulting, you're a business owner, and that type of employment, you are pricing your product or your service based on the overall expense of the business. You're including what you're going to make as a salary or bonus, what you're going to spend as far as business expenses and what your benefits are going to cost. But there is a third type of employment and that is tipped work. It's the only other type of work that has its own separate minimum wage, which federally is $2 and 13 cents. So people, statistic. people often forget that there is this very separate type of work. I often see in like the comment sections, people are always like, Oh, why are we having to subsidize for these employers who don't pay their employees enough to live on? And it's like, well, that's not that's not the type of work that this is. It's always and will always be structured as you pay the restaurateur, the club owner, the bar owner, the, you know, and then you tip individual who you're working with separately. It's, it's a two part process. I just think it's good for people who may not have experience in the industry to understand that it's its own type of industry, its own yeah. type of employment. Right. When you said that, it just immediately brought to my mind all of the Karens who, those of us who worked in the service industry or are working in the service industry go, that person has clearly never worked in the service industry because of the way they're acting. hundred <laughs> percent. What I think you do bring up a very accurate point. And I think, I think it was in the acknowledgement in that nobody in personal finance and certainly nobody in, in corporate bigger finance is talking to tipped workers. It's just, it, it, you're right. It, it is sort of this industry, th this pay group that we don't really take into account. And I think for a lot of people, it's because they think that they're not being serious or that it's only a temporary gig. Because for a lot of people going through the service industry was temporary. But to your point in, in the book, there are a lot of people who do this as a career for a myriad reasons. And they should have the same sort of financial support and financial education and financial security in the long run as any other type of worker. Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers I think are a little bit underreported because of that transient nature and people are probably also listing themselves as a student or sometimes they'll consider the service industry survival work and they have another job or their creative endeavor or something like that. But currently the numbers are about 5.5 million people work in the service industry on a tip-based income. And it's, it's, it's a big group of people in the U.S. It's the largest private sector employer in the country. So we're yeah. not talking about a small industry. We're talking about a large group of people. And it is not necessarily a transient position. I think there's a lot of shame and stigma. The, the industry gets bad PR because of the fact that a lot of people move in and out of it. But that's also a feature. Right. Yeah. And I do love how you call that out in the book is that, you know, you are, we do get sort of a black eye about this, but it, it, there is a feature to it. There are reasons why people choose this as a career option, whether it's because they want to they want to travel the world or live in different cities at different periods of time in their life, or it's helps them while they raise children or, you know, any number of reasons. I can't even think of them all. They don't want to sit in a fucking cubicle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the big reasons that queer people enter the service industry is because the first reason I think is because of community, you know, our first encounters, many of us, our first experiences of feeling 
welcome and safe to be ourselves are in bars or clubs or that first diner that we hung out in. You know, that's that's where we were able to find people who were like us. And so we're drawn to these industries where we have this sense of community. I think also our community, the queer community has experienced a lot of trauma, whether it's historical trauma, community trauma, individual trauma. And when you experience trauma, a, a typical and pretty normal coping response to that is either numbing or avoidance. Both of those things are done in clubs, bars, restaurants, you know? So I think there's a lot of reasons that queer people tend to go into the service industry, community, trauma. I think also a lot of people in this queer community have a scarcity mindset, right? They may not have grown up with an abundance of love, support, feeling like there was opportunity. And because of those things, you may want a job that feels easy, that feels fun, a job where you can feel like yourself. There's not a lot of industries that reward you for being unique and flashy and memorable and flamboyant and bubbly and all of these things. And this is the one industry that celebrates you being yourself. And, you know, we also know what it's like to feel othered and excluded. So it's a natural skill set that we as queer people have to bring other people in and say, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Right. So it's, it's me, it's just such, such a natural fit for that overlap of queer people in the service industry. Yeah. yeah. Is glad you said that. It's a very interesting connection that I don't think a lot of people make is that we're attracted to this. Many people say, oh, you're attracted to this because of safety, or you maybe are attracted to this because of that is what you can get with the skill set that you have. But being attracted to it because you actually want to be yourself is the flair I'm going to pull from office space, the yes. flair, right? The flair mm-hmm. is not just what you have on your suspenders. The flair is who you are too. And so that flair is something I think a lot of people discount. A lot of people, yeah. a lot of times you're in a restaurant, you're in a bar that is not maybe not a queer space, but you can pretty quickly spot the queer or the gay, the, <laughs> the, the you know, the, the person who has a little bit of flair, you say to yourself, okay, that person's family because they're being themselves. And that is nice. Right. I, I never connected with that. Yeah. And I think as queers, we spent a lot of our youth kind of hiding that. And so when we find a space that celebrates it, supports it, and it lends itself to making more money, you know, with that level of engagement and that level of community and that just level of like entertainment, then, you know, I, th- I think it, I think it creates a nice pairing for people. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So let's dive into the nitty gritty here. I'm going to ask a question here that could end the interview immediately, but I don't think it's going to. <laughs> or it could they could go on for infinity. <laughs> Ten sips reach five. Yes or no? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely sips can reach five. Yeah. Well, and thank you. Thank you for saying it. And I wanted you to say it that way because I, I think that there's this assumption that that's not really an option for people who are, who are in the service industry. So to hear somebody actually come out and say, yes, service industry, industry professionals, bartenders, waiters, strippers, dancers, go-go boys, whomever, whatever whatever it, your flair is and you're getting tipped for, if done with the right information and the resources, you can also reach financial independence. And that's what we loved about this book because we're all about financial freedom and architecting the life that you want. And if you're in the service industry and that's what you want to do for any number of reasons, do it. But let's also help you reach financial independence. And so that's what we're going to dive into. Yeah. I think that what is great about the service industry is there are unique hazards, but there are also unique opportunities. And those things can both be true and exist at the same time. It can be a great opportunity and a great job for a lot of reasons. And it can also have a lot of hazards and things that you need to protect yourself against. And that's true for any job. I did like that you talked about this in the book, that there are hazards to jobs. Because I think a lot of times we forget, right? We forget the kinds of hazards, both physical 
and mental health hazards that folks face in these jobs. And it was nice that you talked about that because of the whole train of thought you went down with the coping mechanisms to how we face the hazards, especially the mental health hazards, and how those impact our ability to get onto and stay on a financially prosperous path, how it can divert us so quickly. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the question about can SIPs reach by real quick, though. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons that service industry professionals aren't aware of the fact that they can reach financial independence is because they're not tracking their income. And when you're in an industry where you're not tracking your income, then you don't realize how much opportunity you have. So if we all didn't have to track our income in our jobs, if it wasn't automatic as part of our W-2 or required by our taxes, if we we're a business owner in those two other types of employments, we would probably not be tracking it either. But it's a it's a requirement of those two other industries that is not a requirement of this industry, or at least, you know, is it, it's a suggested aspect of this industry, which many of us just don't do because we don't see our other peers doing it. And so when you don't know how much income you're making, you tend to not see it as real. And when you don't see your money as real, then you don't see that it has real potential to do things for yourself and your life. And that may be why you feel like you can't achieve financial freedom, financial independence, any of your milestones. And so I always love looking at other industries, for examples. We in the FI community talk a lot about that $40,000 a year janitor who got to a million dollars. The service industry does not have an income problem, at least in most places. I have worked in seven different states all over the country in a variety of different types of tipped positions. I was a cater waiter. I was a go-go dancer. I was a pole dancer. I was a fetish worker. I was a bartender. I was a waitress. I was a beer girl, shot girl. You name it in the service industry, I've done it, except I have not been a hairstylist or a taxi driver. (laughs) But outside of it, I have done a ton of work in this industry. And I know that income is not the problem. The problem is we don't realize how much opportunity and potential our income has if we're good stewards over it, that starts with tracking it. The second side of it is money management. Our industry is really great at talking about how much we make on a shift. You know, we talk to our friends who are coworkers about how well we did on a shift or, oh my gosh, I made a thousand dollars last night or the tips are rolling in. We're really good at that. But where we as a community fall short is in the money management side. And it's not necessarily a fair judgment to say that we're not, we're even falling short because people in the nine to five world, that is automatic for them, right? They have their money set up and their system set up for them by their employers. The number one reason that most Americans become a millionaire is because HR Sharon has them check a box that says, yes, I'll contribute to my 401k. And that's how majority of Americans become millionaires. SIPs don't have that opportunity. They don't have HR. They don't have a 401k. They don't have paid time off. They don't have health insurance. You name it, they don't have that benefit. 95% of restaurants, bars, and clubs do not offer any employer benefits. So these people tend to fall short or miss out on these wealth building opportunities because they don't have any systems. They don't have any safety nets in place for them. And so I, I make this distinction in the book where let's say you have a nine to fiver going out and you have a service industry professional going out, the nine to fiver will spend what they have left over after all of those safety nets are in place. Whereas the service industry professional will spend what they have. And I think that's a big reason why they're not able to build well. Those are huge, huge points to make. And I imagine it's, it's, it's kind of daunting to figure out how to create the systems that can help you better track and then better plan or manage your money. So when you're, you just mentioned, you know, I had a thousand dollar night and you're getting a thousand dollars in one night in all different kinds of denominations, summer coins, summer dollar bills, whatever. How do you track that out? How do you, how do you take that home? One, how do you not spend all of that when you're already out? Cause you're already in a, an environment where a lot of us go to take a break after work. How do you not spend that when you're already out? And then how do you take that home and make sure you put those dollars exactly where they need to go? Yeah. I think how we were talking about opportunities and hazards of different employment types and in different industries, 
in the service industry, one of the hazards is that the community is very good at selling lifestyle, fun, sexy, sex, you know, having a good time. We are amazing at selling that. And we end up becoming the ultimate consumers. And so after a big shift or an energizing shift, which many, many nights are, if you're in the industry, you you leave feeling more energized. It's very common to want to go out with your coworkers, out to a bar, out to a club and spend a portion of what you just made, which is actually a cost of working. And you have to remember that not a lot of other industries have that. So when you're starting to track your income, when you're starting to track your expenses, which is something I'm a big fan of, at least in the beginning of your financial journey, you start to see like, oh, is it worth it to me to be spending this amount of money winding down from this job? I spent 30% of what I made just to pay to play, right? And so when you start seeing them as trade-offs instead of a requirement of this industry, it empowers you to make a different decision if you want to. You get to become more intentional when you see what's what's really happening when you look at those numbers. Yeah. I will say when I read that, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, I know this is not exactly what you're talking about, but I worked when I worked at The Gap, right? There was always that desire and and also a little bit of a requirement to look like a Gap guy, right? I had to wear the Gap clothes. I had to have... But then on top of that, I was working in retail and I that was just kind of the thing, right? I wanted to spend my money on retail. So there were plenty of times I was like, how did I make so little? And then I realized... <laughs> How much was being deducted from my paycheck because I bought this this season's worth of clothes, right? But that you, you, it's kind of the same thing when when working in the service industry. Your shift's over. I'm going to go have a drink. Exactly. Hundred percent. I think I don't know that there were many times that I got off bartending or serving that where I didn't stop at the bar and have at least one drink. It almost seemed like it was a requirement. Go take your your restaurant shirt off. <laughs> go to the bar. <laughs> yeah. But in reality, it's not a requirement. You guys right. do such a great job of talking about how you can have your community of friends support you while you're saving money, like to create and think outside of the box for other ways of doing things, whether it's you know, if you go home with your coworkers and you get a couple of bottles of $12 wine that you know are good because you have the experience to know which $12 bottle of wine is better than the $40 bottle of wine, then there's savings there and you're still getting the same experience of camaraderie and having having a good time. Yeah. I love that when you talked about that in the book, that you get all of these skills that a lot of people don't have that you learn, right? How to make a good drink, how to pick a good bottle of wine. In some cases, how to prepare food or match food that doesn't cost a lot of money with with wine that doesn't cost a lot and actually works out really well. You get all these skills, use those skills to your advantage. <laughs> exactly. But you're also trained to know a really nice scotch when you see it. And so sometimes yeah. you think that, you know, oh, well, after a long shift, I deserve a really nice scotch. And it's like, we all deserve a really nice, we all deserve all the things. But is that really what you want to value? Is it is it more important some of these other things? I think that we were talking about the queer community and having a bit of a scarcity mindset. I think a lot of people in, in the service industry also have that scarcity mindset. We tend to want to spend our money as soon as we get it because we don't want it to be taken from us. And that's, yeah. that's a big thing I see in the service industry is people it's almost a split of scarcity and abundance mindset. They know there's always going to be that next shift. And so they know that money is going to be coming to them, but they also want to get the money out the door as quickly as they can because they don't want someone else to take it. And so, you know, I think working on an abundance mindset is a really important thing, both for queer people and for people in the service industry. I tackled my mindset, my scarcity mindset with mantras. I love the, the mantra, money comes easily and frequently. Because when you're in the industry, it does. You just got to capture that and keep it <laughs> to fulfill those dreams. <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the things that John and I were like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Why didn't someone never explain this to us? When it comes to that idea of how much money you make and reporting all of it... <laughs> I think it's almost a game for those of us who worked in the industry to say, oh, I only had to report 1% of all of my income this year. Why is that a really bad idea? 
Yeah. So not claiming your tips as income is, is short-term thinking. And I can see why our industry falls into this is because some of us get to tax time when we realize that we don't have the money saved to pay for it. Some of us haven't been tracking our tips at all. And so we have, we have genuinely no idea how much we made. And so we're either just like throwing a dart at a wall <laughs> or we're like asking the HR, H&R block professional, like, what do you think I made? You know, I mean, <laughs> you have no idea. And so it's, it's a bad idea for many reasons. One, if you're not tracking your income, you don't know how much you're making and you don't know how you should be utilizing that money. That money is just, it's going out the door in whatever way your community sees fit, not in how you want to spend your money. Mm-hmm. The biggest reasons that people should be claiming their tips as income is that a lot of time your income is what sets the amount of money that you stand to receive from different benefits. Social security is the biggest one. So the average social security payout for 2020 was $18,000. And that's for people who claimed all of their income. Now, if you can't imagine living on even a portion of $18,000, then you're in trouble because majority of currently retired service industry professionals rely solely, solely, only on social security to live on. SIPs agents, the most economically disadvantaged population into our country. They're twice as likely to be unhoused as people who don't work in the industry. Very, probably very similar numbers to queer the queer population as well. The other reason outside of social security, unemployment, we saw this in COVID. Right. You know, many people in the service industry they got the bonus checks, but had that not been there, they would have been completely ineligible for unemployment benefits when their restaurants or bars or clubs were shuttered due to COVID. The other thing that I like to talk about and mention, we we mentioned 401k millionaires. So there's two ways that most people build wealth in this country. The first is 401ks. The second is their primary residence. When you aren't claiming your income, then you are not eligible for traditional financing for your home. Most mortgages want to see at least two years of income. And if you're not claiming all or most of it, then you will you will find yourself looking at very predatory lending rates or or other, you know, usurious loan products if you are in the market for a home. And so it's it's very important to think more long term about claiming your tips. Those to me, those are just two very profound reasons to start tracking your money and start planning financially. One, to create whatever your version of a 401k, as Barbara outlines in the book here, there is a way for you to do that. Mm-hmm. But two, buy a home. Because those two, to your point, I mean, you've, you've stated the statistics that we've shared on the podcast several times. Those two avenues are the primary way that most people in, in the United States reach financial security. And that's as available to a tipped worker as it is to anybody else. It just takes knowing the information and then utilizing it appropriately. Absolutely. And and unfortunately there's also just not a lot of good modeling seen in our in our industry. And so that was a big reason behind writing the book is I wanted to be able to model that it is possible to set up your own benefit system. It is possible to give yourself paid time off. Paid time off is another huge benefit that I that I love talking about. People who work 9 to 5 jobs, they have an average of 7 vacation days, 5 PTO, 7 holidays. That's like 20 days. That's a full working month. How much happier, healthier, prosperous would you be as a human if you had a whole month of working off? You know, and so that PTO is a huge benefit, not only in that you're able to take a mental health day, but you're also able to take a day to go have a physical. You know, majority of people who leave this industry or bounce from job to job, one of the reasons it's such it's known as such a transient work, you know, type is because people experience burnout at much higher rates because they don't have that PTO there. And they also know that they're not leaving anything on the table if they just walk out of a job. So, you know, I do think that people, the industry gets a little bit of a bad reputation, but it's a big part because those benefits aren't there to support the people and keep them at their places of employment. That, uh, you have a great exercise in the book uh, on page 26 where you calculate how much money it costs you to work, similar to what we talked about before. If you, How much is that drink or those drinks after you get off work? How much is that costing you to wind down? How much is it costing you to 
to take a day off to actually go get a physical if you actually need to. You suggest then not only calculating how much that costs from a dollar's perspective, but then also calculating how much then do you have to work to pay for those things with your dollars. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, because I think like when we were talking about like you just went out and spent 30% of what you made in a shift, if you asked yourself like, would I have rather gone home at seven o'clock and only worked for three hours and not gone out? Or would I have rather worked that 10 hour shift or that, you know, however long that shift was and go out? I think the problem is that people give themselves the wrong trade-offs. They ask themselves, would I rather go out or not go out? Well, if that's Mm -hmm. the question you're asking yourself, then the answer is always going to be, I'd rather go out. But if you're asking yourself different questions, like, would I rather have worked three hours and not gone out? Or would I have rather worked eight hours and gone out? I think there's going to be days when you're not going to choose that eight hour shift and you're Mm going to go home and you're going to get the rest that you need. You're going to hydrate. You're going to, you know, take care of your long list of to do's and go to the bathroom. I love that one. when You talked about that. (laughs) How many times did with uh, as waiters, did we hold it because we were rushed with tables, right? Giving ourselves potential bladder infections or urinary tract infections. It's brilliant that you bring those things up that most people don't think about. (laughs) No other industry has that. And I think it's just such a a good reminder that in in this industry, we tend to put others before ourselves. And Mm. that's why I have a whole section on creating boundaries. Every industry, creating boundaries is important, but especially in industries where you're working with the general public. The general public is tough, right? (laughs) And... We're bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but you're put in situations where you're often made to feel small or you have to go along with some conversations that maybe you wouldn't otherwise go along with had that power dynamic not been at play. Seasoned vets in this industry understand how important boundaries are. And I think that was really something that I wanted to give this next generation of people coming in is that when you're working with the general public, boundaries are super important, you know, and that developing them early on is a lot easier. Like having just hard rules for yourself. I don't give out my phone number. I'd never say this name of the street that I live on. I don't talk or share photos of my kids or, you know, whatever your personal boundaries are. It's so good to make a list of those before you start in this industry so that the decision making is already done by the time you get to your ship. These are things I talk about. These are things I don't talk about. These are things I'm willing to do for my guests. These are things I'm not willing to do for my guests. So I think that's it's an important part to staying staying in this industry long term. Right. And so your point, then you want to sort of apply that to your finances. So I never spend more than five or 10% of my tips in a night afterwards or whatever, you know, makes sense for you. Or I always put 20% of a night's tips towards my Roth IRA or whatever boundaries you need to set so you can achieve the goals that you figure out for yourself as you guide people through in the last chapter of the book. Figure out what those goals are, how you can achieve those goals and what you have to do to to actually make those things happen. That has to apply not only to your boundaries around what you're willing to share about your personal life, but how you're willing to use your money in the environment you're in and for your long-term financial security. Yeah. Um, there's a section in my emergency fund chapter where I talk about how to like different strategies you can use to build your emergency fund. And I love, I like to gamify everything. Like I love everything to be a fun game. And that's why I think this book is really approachable just because it's filled with stories and analogies and games. And it's not just a bunch of boring, stodgy finance stuff. But like one of the games I love to play to build an emergency fund is like, they're so whimsical. Like if you have a bar and you're running a bar by yourself, like picking a a couple seats at your bar that are your saving sections. Like, oh, whatever people tip me at these two bar seats are going to be what I put towards my savings. Or anyone that tips me that has a yellow shirt on is going to be retirement money, no matter what, like as a rule, general rule always. And so it's when you you make those games fun that it doesn't become such a struggle to to hit your financial goals. And, you know, you almost look forward to it. You're like, oh, 
There's that guy walking There's up in the shirt. yellow shirt. Like <laughs> that guy is going to be paying me for the rest of my life. That tip is going to be. <laughs> We're going to work that guy really hard. <laughs> and just think about the quality of service you're going to give that guy, right? I mean, just inherently, you're just like, I'm going to make this person so happy. <laughs> They're going to just give me the biggest tip ever. Next time he yeah. comes in with a green shirt, he's like, wah, wah, what's going on here? <laughs> but it's also like injecting that kind of fun and whimsy and gameplay into your job makes it a lot more fun as well. You know, and then you're thinking about your job in a way that's supporting you in the long term. Yeah. All right. So David has you, you, dying you, you to, ask to ask me this, this question. No, this, this <laughs> we were driving in the car and I read that I was reading the section of that book to David at the time. He stopped me, goes, I'm sure. All right. All right. So how do you think the audience would respond to a dancer or a stripper if they were to tell them that during this particular song or segment? they are funding my retirement plan or this is you are helping build my emergency savings all this is going right? to my all Roth IRA the, like right? how do you think the audience would respond i don't think the audience would respond very well at all <laughs> oh, really? I, oh. <laughs> in my in my budgeting chapter i have a section where i talk about how budgeting is very similar to working in the fetish industry in the fetish i use a couple examples but in in the fetish industry only people who are into feet want to talk about feet. So you have to find your people. When you are on a dance on a stage doing a doing a set, and you know, you come up to this person who's tipping you and you tell them that their tips are going towards your retirement. One, they picture you older, oh, elderly true. retiring. That's not that's not something you want them to have topic. in mind. No, right. not a sexy, like just wait till I'm 60. You're gonna be let me show you my dividends. <laughs> Secondly, you're reminding likely reminding someone of something that they are not yeah, doing very yeah, well that's with. True. So true. you're not making them feel good about yourself. When you're a dancer, you need to be making the other person feel really great about themselves. And so reminding them about a their their own retirement, their mortality, the, 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 the responsibilities <laughs> they might not be up to. Not a great idea. The right. other example I say in how it relates to the fetish community is that, you know, discretion is encouraged, right? So you don't have to share your kink, your fetish with anyone else in the same way that you don't have to share your financial goals with anyone else. It can be your dirty or not dirty little secret. And, you know, it's nobody's business. So <laughs> I would not recommend <laughs> telling people... Man. This is why David never made it as a pole dancer. Well, first of all, <laughs> yeah, just one reason why that's, that's it's just one of the many. <laughs> all right. So you, you, you brought up budgeting and I think you mentioned it a couple of times and you talk about in the book, all these different apps and we get a lot of pitches from, from app companies to do different kinds of projects on, on their apps for budgeting and whatnot. But over and over and over again, David and I come down and say, nothing really beats our Excel spreadsheet. Like just keeping it simple and like, but and you say the same thing in the book. Like you talk about these, the, all these apps are great and they have different benefits. They have their loopholes as well. They don't follow through, but ultimately you say that Excel is just the best. So how about that? I think, yeah, I think <laughs> the reason that Excel is so great is that all of our brains are so unique, right? We think about things in really different ways. Like how I think about a calendar in my head, calendars go diagonal in my head. Like I just think about things really differently. And I think we all do when you have that space to kind of lay things out, how your brain thinks about them, mm -hmm. then your brain is more likely to stick with something that it understands. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is great about Excel is that you can, you can adapt with it. You know, it provides a little bit of structure to keep you, you know, contained, but it's also very adaptable. I am a huge fan of Excel. Yeah. And that's why we oftentimes recommend to people, if you're not a huge fan of Excel and spreadsheets, because there are people who don't like it, there are tons of, of YouTube videos on how to create simple spreadsheets. So then once you get sort of the, the, the fundamentals down, then you can lay it out however it makes sense for your particular brain. Totally. All right. Now you've all already talked about wine and how that people who are in the service industry, especially bartenders, sommeliers, servers tend to know how to find the good wines and the good wines that aren't so expensive. But I have to say, I think it was brilliant that you made the idea, the concept of investing so easy by simply saying that if you're able to understand wine and what pairs, what wines pair with what foods and the different kinds of aromas and tannins, then investing is no more complicated than wine. 
Can you please extrapolate on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my investing chapter is probably my favorite because I think investing is a very overwhelming concept that really trips people up. There's a lot of terms, a lot of jargon, a lot of strategies. And the reason I love this chapter is because if you have been to a bar and you understand what it's like to be at a bar, by the end of this chapter, you will understand investing. You can get way deep into wine. You can get super deep into wine knowledge. You can talk about regions. You can talk about tannins. You can talk about mouthfeel. You can talk about notes. You can get way into wine. In the same way, you can get way into investing. You can talk about Forex and futures. And, you know, I, I mean, the list goes on and on bell curves and, but you don't have to know much about wine to have a really great wine experience. And the same is true about investing. You don't have to know everything or really a lot of things about investing in order to have a great investing experience. You mm -hmm. have to know a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the basics, and you get in and you get out and you have a great time. Like if it's not your desire to be knowing all of these things about wine and you just want to have a great glass of wine and get a nice buzz and enjoy the dining experience, you can do that with wine. You can also do that with investing. Know a little bit about yourself, know a little bit about investing, get in and get as much of the benefits as people who know all of these terms and strategies and spend all of their time on day trading or or what have you. So I think people assume that they have to come in really knowledgeable to get into it. And that's that's just not the case. Well, that or that it's so complicated that that's for other people. And and, and I'm not smart enough or I don't have this, the right resources. I didn't come from the right background. But if you've been able to understand wine or you can understand you know, bourbons or whiskeys and what if you're able to talk to complete strangers about your knowledge of these different kinds of drinks and feel confident and, and also sell them on what's appropriate for them, for their, their taste or their, whatever it is, their meal is, you can do the same thing with investing. If you can, whatever training you had to do, go through to get the, the wine education, it's no more complicated to, to do that with investing. And there are some simple books that are out there to do that. And if you can get the wine, you can get the investing. Yeah, 100%. I think people in the industry downplay their abilities, right? And some of that comes from the fact that they'll have guests who will say like what if you what is your real job or, you know, what are you what are you going to do with your life? You know, those that hazard of our clients and the general public, they can chip away at our confidence and then on top of the fact that our industry has really bad PR, leaves us feeling like it's some sort of moral or ambition failure to be in this industry and to do this work, but really we are placed in a lot of strange situations in this industry. And with that comes a lot of great skills. So yeah, you're right. Like we have a lot of potential. We learn, we're able to do back of the envelope math very quickly. Oh, okay, so I'm gonna have this many tables. This is my section. This is how many turns I'm gonna need to get in a night in order to make what I need to make. We are doing that constant analysis all of the time. And that's a skill that you have in money management, in budgeting and in investing, and, and people in the industry already possess it. You are the beginning and end of a transaction. You are in many ways an entrepreneur in most of these service industry settings. And so that comes with a lot of skills. And yes, absolutely. Anyone who, if you can ring in a 10 top on a point of sale system, you can invest. If you can talk about four different types of whites, four different types of reds and your different types of whiskeys, you are smart enough to invest. And I think it's a, it's just, it's a good reminder to people that it's, it's not that complicated and you will, if you just take a little bit of time, you'll get there. And it's possible. Yeah. So what strategies can queer people, queer professionals implement to better their financial life? I think it's the same as when you first enter the queer community, it's building community. Right. I think what I love so much about what you guys are doing is that there's a lot of queer people who struggle. And because of that, I think a lot of other queer people downplay their success. And mm -hmm. so they're not doing a great job of modeling good financial behavior, the ability to achieve financial independence, financial freedom. And because of that, our community doesn't see see the modeling that we need in order to keep growing in, in the ways that we need to. And so if you are a queer service industry professional, you may not see a lot of good role models, but if you're listening to this 
podcast, if you're reading my book, then you are already ahead of your peers <laughs> and you need to become a leader and be bringing other people from your community into this world so that you can all grow and support yourselves together. So I'm just, I'm just a big fan of community. Reach out to me, right? You know, if you want to, if you want to get better with your systems or, you know, learn more about how to set up yourself for financial independence. If you are a service industry professional, I just think people asking questions. One of the other things I like to say is like, if you are unsure how to get started investing, call Vanguard. They will be so happy to walk you through how to set up your first IRA. You know, you can ask a lot of questions like, am I doing this right? Did my, Can you see my bank account on your end? Did it link? Did I actually buy that investment or is it just sitting in my money market account? Like, be okay to fail a lot at first. We are all failing forward. And so just get comfortable knowing that you're not going to know it all at first and it's going to be okay. So find your community and be okay failing. Absolutely. Although you brought up in the book early on, I think it's page 49, that we all have a tendency to lie to ourselves. What I think there you were specifically talking about spending, but I think maybe this applies to lying to ourselves about our abilities, lying to ourselves about our level of confidence, lying to ourselves about what we actually can do when it comes to finding opportunities. Why do you think we love to do that so much? Why why do we like to do that? Yeah, I, mean, I think our brains are really good at responding to, we need more, 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 more. That's what our brains are really good at, survival. And so our brains don't have the ability to say, oh, no, you have enough. You're okay. Like that's not how our brains work because they need us to be surviving at all times. And so we have to create new pathways in our brain to say that we have enough. And so I recommend people do that with gratitude. When you are telling yourself like, oh, I'm so grateful for all that I have. You're training your brain not to be in that consistent thought cycle of looking for more and what's going to go wrong you do that when you're being grateful. Also charity. I highly recommend, you know, being, being charitable because when you train your brain that you have enough to give to other people, then you're training your brain that you have enough and that you're not in that, that lack, that scarcity, that fear, that line to yourself sort of, you know, mode. I also think tracking is a huge part of being honest with yourself, you know, whether it's tracking how much you make or how much you spend, but also on the personal side, like, People in the nine to five world have an, an employee review every year where their boss will say, these are all the great things you did over the course of the year. People in the service industry don't have those annual reviews. If you knocked something out of the park and you you did something really great or you learned a new skill or you moved up from service bar to main bar or side stage to main stage, you know, like write yourself up an annual review of all the things that you've learned during the year of what you gained, just to remind yourself that you are learning, you are growing, you are getting better. And you know, that's how you keep yourself honest is tracking, whether it's monetarily or or personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to give yourself a pat on the back, especially when nobody else is and you've done something great. Right. Mm -hmm. 100%. I think the money quote of the entire book though, and I think kind of wraps up what everything you sort of just said there, because I think it's a challenge that a lot of people have, not just SIPs, but a lot of people in, in, in many industries and David and me included, the quote is, an abundance mindset means figuring out where truth meets possibility. And sort of to overcome those lies that we're telling ourselves, we got to figure out, well, what is actually true? Is the lie that I, is this thing that I'm telling myself actually true or is it an, a lie? And if it's a lie, then how do I decondition my brain to, to believe the opposite of what the actual possibility is? I love that quote. Yeah, I like that through identity as well. So people will say, I think our language is very important and how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. And I think that we don't use our language as a resource enough, you know, like we should choose our words as carefully as we choose our financial products or, or the, you know, the people that we surround ourselves with. And, you know, so maybe instead of saying I'm broke, you could say something like, I have a lot of obligations for my money right now, or I'm not bad with money. I'm in the process of getting good with money. I have saved a little bit. Therefore, I am a saver. I just started investing. So I'm an investor, right? Our language is super, super important to the people that we are and the people that we are going to become. And so I just encourage people to use 
and be more careful about how you talk about yourself because it matters. And I I will say that's a, it's a really important one for our community because whether it's family, friends, probably weren't very good friends or church or school or politicians, we always get these negative messages. We get this lot of negative messaging and it's, we just absorb it from very early age. We absorb that negative messaging and it's so easy for us to have that as a tendency to continue that negative messaging about ourselves our, and what we are able to do or what we're capable of doing. Yeah. And I think you guys do a great job of that. You know, I think we all thought that as a queer community, we were just, we were very lavish spenders and you are doing great work in showing the numbers, tracking, keeping us all honest in the fact that that's not necessarily the case. As a community, we are doing good things and we have the potential to do a lot more good things. Amen to that. (laughs) Not (laughs) to us, but to the fact that our community can do that. (laughs) And we love that you're a part of the community. And we love getting to know you more as, as, as our relationship has grown. Where all can our listeners get a copy of your book? Yeah, they can find it on Amazon. I haven't done my indie, indie launch yet because it's only been out for two months, but that, that'll that be up next. So keep an eye out at your independent bookstores if you're, or you could request it from your independent bookstores or library because that's in progress. But right now, please purchase it on Amazon. And if you do, please leave a review. You can also find me at, at Tipped Finance on all the socials. I like to hang out mostly on Instagram where I make financial education fun. I like to make a lot of memes. <laughs> I just started on TikTok. So hopefully I get more comfortable there, but watch me fail forward on TikTok. <laughs> and then you could also find me at www.tippedfinance.com. I do one-on-one coaching. I also will do a money talk at your restaurant club or bar or shoot me a message or an email. I love to see people in the industry win and doing well. Awesome. Well, to our listeners and viewers, hang on to the very end to hear how and or see how you might be able to get a free copy of Barbara's book. But meanwhile, Barbara, thank you so much for connecting with us, for writing this book, and for coming on the show to share your message. I think everybody who's in the service industry, even if it's for a short duration or for a lifetime, we highly recommend they get your book. There's so much great information in there. I think maybe every GM of every restaurant should buy a whole catalog of books for all their employees and have a, a book club and help their employees reach financial security because not only will it help the individuals reach financial security, but it'll help help your employees do better at work. And that'll help you do better with sales and help you do better for whoever it is that you report to. So it's a trickle up. That's trickle up economics, which we're talking more about on the podcast. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Queer Money Podcast. Here's your takeaway from this episode. If you're a service industry professional or a loved one of a SIP, get a copy of Barbara's book, Tipped, The Life-Changing Guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. It's a game changer for tip workers. For the chance to win a free copy of Barbara's book, subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast newsletter in your podcast player or the video description below. Then join us this Thursday for another bonus episode of the Queer Money Podcast. And next Tuesday, when we talk about how to break the news of your financial goals to family and friends. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.